Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. This is the Pitchfork Review. I'm Pooja Patel, the editor of Pitchfork. So we'll get right to it. All that anyone can think about right now is the upcoming election, which is arguably the most important one in recent history. The stakes were already high going into 2020, and this year's whirlwind of historical events has heightened them even further. And for many of us at Pitchfork, we've been asking ourselves, what does the role of music play in the midst of social and political upheaval? We turn to music for comfort and catharsis, sure, but how and when does music also have the ability to make a real change? And as musicians have become more influential than ever, what's their role in it all? So today we're going to try to get at those questions and maybe answer some of them with the help of some friends. With us, we have Allison Hussey, an associate staff writer here at Pitchfork, and contributor Jason King, who is an associate professor at NYU and a founding member of the Clive Davis Institute of Recorded Music. Hey guys, how's it going? Hey. Hey Pooja. Hey Allison. So I feel like we should just start with, do you remember the first time that you were aware that a song or a piece of music that you were listening to was infiltrating your social consciousness as well, or kind of bringing out values or ideals or political feelings or leanings within yourself that you might not have tapped as clearly before? Yeah, I mean, one thing that was absolutely formative for me was when I was about 15, I took guitar lessons for a year from a guy named Max, who had a really deep, deep background in performing blues and country music. And that obviously informed a lot of his teaching. And as part of his lessons, he would burn me tons and tons of CDs, uh, sometimes like three or four a week and would just send me home with, uh, you know, Albert King, B.B. King, more than I could even handle. And, you know, within That's all sick that, as a 15 year old. Yeah, it, it was great. And like, it was, it was so exciting for me. And like with, within all these CDs, he like made a point to burn me CDs by women. And among those were CDs by uh, Willie Mae Thornton, Big Mama Thornton, and Lizzie Douglas, who is also known as Memphis Minnie. During our lessons, he would say like, oh, well, you know, Elvis's hound dog. You ain't nothing but a hound dog. Actually, that came from Big Mama Thornton. You ain't nothing but old hound dog. Quit snooping on my dog. You know who Led Zeppelin is? You've heard When the Levee Breaks. If it keeps on raining, break. Here's the seed of that. If it keeps on raining, Levee's going to break. And the water gonna come, I have no place to stay. 
chronic stealers. Led Zeppelin, the worst <laughs> stealers of them all. But. Yeah, and that like that was, you know, I obviously like I knew what a cover song was at that point, but at the same time, you know, I was again being fifteen, I was also starting to learn about feminism for the first time, although I didn't know that that was what it was called. And I remember learning about this stuff and f- feeling that like very potent, zealous teen outrage of just like, well, why, why didn't anybody tell me about this before? And I (laughs) I felt so righteously angry because I felt like these women had been written out of these stories of these huge songs that have defined the landscape of rock music to a certain extent. And I was just like, why did it take me this long to learn about who these women were? Uh, From there, it also just kind of sealed me into a mindset of always kind of interrogating the music I was listening to um, and thinking about like, okay, well, who's actually telling this story? Who wrote this story? Who's telling it now? Mm -hmm. Why are they the ones telling it? Jason, what about for you? Well, for me, I I grew up in the 80s, in the mid-80s, which I think was a a particular particularly interesting time for the commingling of popular culture and politics. In 87, I went to the Edmonton Public Library. Edmonton's a city where I grew up in Western Canada. And you could go and take out any vinyl records that you wanted. You could take out 10 at a time. So I would take out 10, and then I would, like, listen to them, record them on cassette, take them back. I don't know if I can say that publicly, but it's so long ago now, it doesn't matter. Um, and, and so I would just take out stuff that looked... Kids, this is what the original pirating of music looked like. Truly, yes. Going to the Edmonton Public Library and taking out vinyl vinyl albums. Yeah. But I, you would just take out stuff because of the cover. And I remember seeing the cover of Public Enemy's Yo Bum Rush the Show, which is like militant and provocative. Mm-hmm. I didn't know who Public Enemy was. They were not being played on the radio at the time. There was no context. And when I heard that album, when I heard songs like hip hop songs, like You're Gonna Get Yours. The mixture of activism, blackness, protest. I mean, they're, they were just like fearless in taking on power structures. I was totally changed. I mean, I was radicalized. And then... <laughs> The follow-up record. How old were you then? I was probably about 12 years old at the time. Yeah, 12 or 13. So hearing that and then the follow-up albums, It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back, hearing Bring the Noise for the first time, I mean, I had never heard music that sounded like that. It's so densely layered in terms of the use of sampling, the aggressive and muscular rhythm track, plus Chuck D's voice, which just sounded like like a boom shot out of a cannon. How low can you go? Death row. What a brother know. Once again, back is the incredible. Rhyme animal. The uncannibal. The public enemy number one. And then like him and Flavor Flav, you know, as like the comic foil to Chuck D, the two of them. I mean, it was just like assaultive noise coming at you out of the speaker, but beautiful noise. That that for me was my like political education very early on. Hell yeah. And Pooja, what about for you? Like, did you, I mean, surely there was something for you that like cracked something open? Yeah. So for some context, I had a kind of unique musical upbringing in that my dad and his entire family are from Zimbabwe And my mom and her entire family are from India. Both my parents are Indian. Um, But 
their kind of knowledge of popular Western music came as they arrived here. Mm-hmm. So that was in the mid 80s. And I feel like there was a lot of kind of American classics that I didn't have the full picture of until I was a little bit older in life. I, I had like a dissociative moment when I was in Girl Scouts. I think I was around eight mm-hmm. and we would do campfire sing-alongs and Blowing in the Wind was one of the campfire leader's favorites. Yes, and how many times must a man look up before he can see the sky? And I remember listening to that song and watching a bunch of kids who did not look like me sing this song and not really having an understanding of what the answer was that was blowing in the wind. <laughs> so fast forward to being in high school and hanging out with people who were, I think, better versed in some of his music. <laughs> and that's how I got clued into how that song in particular was really influenced by the civil rights movement and how Dylan was super informed by artists like Odetta and how the song Blowing in the Wind is actually a kind of spin on this spiritual called No More Auction Block. No more auction block for me. No which is this old black spiritual about slavery. And that's what that song is about, that everyone is singing along to. And all of the people in your like bougie white Girl Scouts troop have no understanding of the roots of that. And having that kind of context to this song mm-hmm. that had previously been associated with this kind of like woodsy, like freewheeling, mm-hmm. childlike energy really changed my understanding of a lot of his music. And I think that's also when I started to realize that a lot of popular music was underlined by Black music that had come from a very different place. Like, it had come from speaking about real-life experiences that were not at all aligned with the groups of people who were singing about those experiences now. Um, In any case, I feel like we have one billion episodes to record about this topic alone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because it does seed into all music, right? Definitely. So what are the different shades of protest music? Like, when does music start to become political? Yeah, I, I think that definition is, is tricky, right? Because there's lots of slippages and the boundaries are not always that clear. Um, it goes back to early slave songs, mm-hmm. like Go Down Moses or Wade in the mm-hmm. Water. But when we're talking about like the first mainstream protest song in, in popular music, it's it's very likely Strange Fruit by Billie Holiday. Southern trees bear strange fruit. It has these incredibly haunting and impressionistic lyrics that use the metaphor of fruit hanging from trees to protest the lynching of Black Americans, which was mm-hmm. really a great injustice that needed to be addressed. Blood on the leaves and blood at the root. 
Uh, Strange Fruit is just an incredible track for so many reasons. The wryness of it, the lyric itself is a very tricky lyric to be able to perform. And she just does yeah. a masterful job of it. It's so arresting to listen to. Yeah. Even now, so many decades after the fact. Scent of magnolia, sweet and fresh. Then the sudden smell of burning flesh. But I look at that as a, as a kind of explicit protest music because it doesn't let you hide, right? <laughs> it compels you. <laughs> it, 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 you. You are implicated once you listen to that song. You have to do something. <laughs> right. And I think there's a lot of other songs that are in that explicit um Tradition. So Mississippi Goddamn by Nina Simone. Alabama has got me so upset and Memphis has made me lose my rest. Everybody knows about Mississippi Goddamn. Which was a musical protest of the murder of civil rights leader Medgar Evers, um, the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing in Birmingham that murdered four mm-hmm. young black girls. And um, that's one of those songs, again, that's like, if you don't know what that's about by the time she's done singing it, something's wrong with you, right? Like, the lyrics are so explicit and they're just in right. your face um, that you can't avoid. Desegregation, mass participation, unification, do things gradually, but bring more tragedy. And so finally, I would just distinguish between that explicit protest music and then protest music that I would call like lower P protest music. So the, <laughs> the politics in it are like a small P rather than a capital uh-huh. one. And that's uh-huh. just to me music that's political by way of inspiration or motivation. So Dancing in the Streets, the classic 64 Motown track by Martha and the Vandellas. That song got taken up by protesters and demonstrators in the 1960s as a civil rights anthem. And, you right, know, Martha right. Reeves had to be like, no, it's a party song. But it became absorbed into protest and it was used as protest. Yeah. Someone who's been towards the front of my brain recently is Helen Reddy, um, in part because she passed away at the end of September. Uh, but she had the song I Am Woman from 1972. Oh, yes. which I feel like kind of exists almost in this like middle zone of like capital P and lowercase P where um, (laughs) she was just like testifying very honestly about like what her experiences had been up to that point and like what other women had been experiencing. And that just kind of like blatant truth telling is like that in itself is really important. And, you know, she, she, I don't think that she wrote that song with the intention of just being like, oh, well, it's going to be like, it's just going to be like a pop single. Like that was never mm-hmm. the intention, but the way that it got swept up in the uh, second wave feminist movement and the way that it has kind of like continued to be this, again, anthem for like women's rights, I think is also like a really, a really big one that's lasted. And I mean, if you listen to it now, Almost everything she says, it's it feels like something that could have been written a few months ago, which is great right. because it feels it still feels fresh, but it's also just like, ah, uh, well, 
what's changed mm. sometimes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm fascinated by that history as well, the history of inspirational songs that could service as protest music, even if it's not protest itself. Do you feel like Gaga, born this way, lands there? How do you feel about those pop anthems that kind of get embraced by a community and then become this political moment? Yeah, I think it absolutely is one of those uh, inspirational anthems, inclusive anthems that was designed to kind of inspire people to be a rallying cry for people who feel marginalized or disenfranchised and so on. And she, in the chorus, she, you know, specifically mm-hmm. says who is included in the nature of the song, right? And I remember, I did not like that song, by the way, when it came out. I <laughs> still have issues with it. I think musically, it's a bit s- simplistic, chord progressions. I just, but I was actually in, traveling in Indonesia when it was released, and there it was banned. And I remember thinking, Whoa. even though I don't like, I don't like this song. The fact that it's banned on the radio means it's doing work in the world, right? Yeah. It's mm-hmm. doing a kind of protest work that's important. And so sometimes I think it's important to remember the global implications of certain kinds of music and the way that they travel. Well, you guys have both obviously followed kind of this natural cohesion between art and politics and person in your writing. And I'm wondering if there are any moments that you can remember when your mind was changed by music or when you've seen music or a piece of art change other people's minds in a in a really visceral way. I know that when I like was really starting to dive deep into the world of folk music, uh, this kind of coincided with the time that the band, the Carolina Chocolate Drops, uh, were really starting to boom in popularity. Yeah. So the Carolina Chocolate Drops are a black string band from North Carolina, and their music tends to come from like pre-World War II. It's kind of under this larger umbrella of what's called old-time music, and learning about that band just kind of set me up more to understand how so much of what we think of as like so-called like white folk music uh, is actually deeply, deeply connected to music made by Black Americans. Kind of all at once, I was learning about um, all of this history, and on one of their records, they covered Blue Cantrell's Hit 'Em Up style. There's just a really incredible fiddle part on there, some great banjo, and I knew the pop song already, but this arrangement just kind of like puts it in a different world. And for me, kind of challenged what my understanding of popular music or pop music was, um, because, you know, the Carolina Chocolate Drops were putting, you know, this really great 90s R&B song on the same footing as, you know, songs that had been popular a century before, especially hearing this one. I mean, the song's a lot of fun, but it also helped challenge me to think about like, okay, well, what is popular music? Um, Popular to whom? Who gets to decide what's popular? And like, what has pop music historically been well before we had an 
you know, the music industry as it exists today. Yeah, for me, I, I there's no one eureka moment. I think like you're saying, Allison, it's just sort of like a gradual sort of consciousness raising that happens over time. But I think an example of a protest song that completely transformed the way the communities move through the world has to be Say Aloud, I'm Black and I'm Proud. Brother, we can't quit until we get our share. James Brown, which is his 1968 anthem that addressed Black power and Black empowerment and self-determination, funky as hell, exuberant, children's choir singing the chorus. <laughs> but that song was galvanizing in the way that it, it more than almost, almost anything else at the time, helped change the way that Black communities thought of themselves. And part of the reason for that was because the word Black had such negative connotations for such a long time. And most people, including African-American people, were using the word Negro instead of Black. And mm -hmm. so that song helped instill pride in Black communities at a time in which there was this burgeoning Black power movement. It right. encouraged Black people to make that shift and start calling themselves Black instead of Negro, and that Black right. would be something to be proud of. And that that was not like some symbolic thing. People actually used that song and deployed it in their lives to make a huge shift. And so I think that's something that will go down in the history of protest music as one of those moments that was instrumental in terms of changing power relationships. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. In just listening to you talk, I'm thinking about how there's so much protest music that is basically written by Black artists and performed by Black artists that has been kind of reconfigured for a more popular mainstream artist and mm -hmm. white white crowds and mm -hmm. communities and listeners. Um, is that useful? Like, it feels like it's been useful. Um, how do we, do we have any conflicting feelings about it? Uh, yeah, it's a tricky question in some ways because the challenge is that a lot of that early 70s, late 60s and 70s music that was like such a quote-unquote golden era for protest music, um, that music was referring to very specific political conditions and cultural conditions mm -hmm. that were happening at the time. And, you know, who's watching The Watcher? Like, that stuff is referring to COINTELPRO and, like, you right. know, Nixon and right. conservatives. Like, it's referring right. to very specific things. And so when I he when it's been sampled and repurposed and recontextualized, on one level, that's incredible in terms of the enduring quality of that music and how it's managed to last. Um, sometimes that repurposing is deeply problematic. For instance, when brands and corporations use protest music, whether we're talking about the Beatles revolution or anything else, and they sort of defang the music right. um, because they use it in a purpose that it wasn't originally used for and they're not interested in the context that comes with it. I think that can right. be problematic. So I'm always interested in a creative recycling of music if it is able to um, 
kind of enhance or affirm in any way some of the original conditions by which that music was made and what it was referring to in the first place. So an example I could give is uh, one of my favorite protest songs of the last of, you know five, six years, which is Hell You Talking About by Janelle Monet and the Wonderland crew, um, which is an incredible song using chants, um, asking uh, listeners of the song to specifically say the names of Black victims of police brutality. But then that song shows up in David Byrne of the Talking Heads, his musical American Utopia. And people were like, why are they using that song? It's so specific to Janelle Monet. It's specific to that moment. Mm-hmm. But I love mm-hmm. it. I think it's amazing because he's asking you to do the same things that she's doing. He's not defanging the song. He's just take, putting it in a different context uh, for a different purpose and for a different audience. And that's just making the music adaptable um, mm-hmm. for a wider group of people. Yeah, that's a great example. And Jason, I feel like the uh, an opposite example that I think of all the time, just because of how badly it irritates me, is there was a <laughs> Super Bowl ad a few years ago for I think it was Ford that used "I wish I knew how it would feel to be free," um, and it was just like, oh no, wh- why, why? <laughs> no one likes being stuck. That's why Ford is developing new ways to help you move through life faster. Easier. Well, well, but feeling good by Nina Simone is also, you know, that's from the the Broadway musical "The Roar of the Grease Paint, Smell of the Crowd" by Anthony Newley, and that's a song in the musical that's about a slave, right, mm-hmm. talking right. about what it feels like to be free. It's a new life for me. Yeah, it's a new dawn. It's a new day. It's a new life for me. And I'm feeling good. And that song, I mean, you hear that everywhere. I mean, from the Michael yeah. Bublé version to it, just feels like it's slowly like something's been removed from the soul of it. Um, and it's a great song on its own musically. So you know, without having to refer to its the original social context in which it was made or what it was supposed to be referring to. And you don't want to be like an enforcer of those things. Like, you better respond to the 60s. You know, that's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and yet at the same time, you ha- you can't f- but feel like the drift is deeply problematic, especially at a time in which we're repeating some of the social problems from the past. Yeah, totally. And again, like going back to the, the better side of it, one that stuck with me um, as like a really interesting kind of recontextualization is how... Um, Jamila Woods and her song Holy from a few years ago. Woke up this morning with a mind set on loving me. With a mind set on loving me. Like the kind of the main refrain of the song, she repurposes part of the the song Woke Up This Morning, uh, which was a hymn that was repurposed and, you know, really powerful during the civil rights movement. Woke up this morning with my mind
know, sometimes those recontextualizations can give people like the first little thing to start pulling on. And then from there, it's totally. like, okay, you read about, uh, you know, woke up this morning in an annotation on genius, and then you're reading about Fannie Lou Hamer. And where do you go from there? It kind of open it opens as many doors as you feel like opening if you are right. Like, it provokes it. some sort of curiosity. Exactly. Well, yeah. I think we hope it provokes the curiosity. I mean, I think yeah. it, goes, it goes so many ways that it's, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's a challenge, right? So I'm thinking of also like Kanye West's repurposing of Nina Simone's version of Strange Fruit on Yeezus. Yeah, Blood on the Leaves. Yeah, yeah. that was, you know, uh, that was that was weird. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I, you know I, I understand. I don't even know if I understand exactly what, what he was trying to do there. But it felt like it was taking something that was so incredibly political and personalizing it in a way that was not only irreverent, but maybe even a little disrespectful to the original context. So I'ma need a little more time now Cause I ain't got the money on me right now And I thought you could wait Yeah, I thought you could wait These bitches surrounding me So Jason, you wrote a great story for us in June um, amid the protests that followed the police killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. And it was about how the relationship between pop stars and activism is shifting. And in your perspective, what has changed recently? I think there's a lot of things that have changed. I was just really struck by this one Instagram post. I think it was on Instagram, the social media post that Janelle Monet had put up, where she was really demarcating the difference between her work as a pop star and then what she was describing as the kind of real work that activists do. And so I thought mm-hmm. that I just took that as like a really important transformative moment in which she seemed clear that like her job at this moment of crisis was to step back and just to amplify the work of organizers and on-the-ground activists. And that, for me, seemed to be a change from the way that pop stars um, had previously operated, that we often kind of looked up to pop stars as our leaders, the people who would lead us through the crisis, the people who would solve famine in Ethiopia. We are the world. Let's all get together in a room and let's, like, change the world and fix the world. And now you had pop stars just saying, oh, I can't do this. Like, I don't have Mm -hmm. the power. I don't have the ability to, like, disentangle the world's problems. But you know who does? Activists, mobilizers, um, organizers. So this summer we saw pop stars who also were not particularly known for their political commentary necessarily, like a Shawn Mendes or Selena Gomez, making space, which in this case meant like giving over their social media accounts um, to organizers and activists, scholars as well, intellectuals. And then others were using and leveraging their celebrity or their bank accounts to help fund movements. And so on one hand, that's not really new. Like Beyonce and Jay-Z were bailing out Black Lives Matter protesters like five, six years ago. But the like sheer volume and scale of it seemed to be really different this time around. And so I wrote the article to try to capture that shift that was happening that seemed kind of subtle in some ways, but also Mm -hmm. to pay attention to the trend of the growing number of musicians who themselves were organizers and mobilizers, like the rise of a pop star like Cardi B, who's such an outspoken activist on social media. Cardi B is like so vocal, so partisan, so ideological, in love with Bernie Sanders, and her fans (laughs) love her for it, right? And so 
that's a different kind of pop star than we've seen in the past. And, you know, you have Halsey and Ariana Grande showing up uh, unannounced at these rallies. Like, they're not making the protests about them. They're just showing up because they're implicated in these social issues, too. Right. Um, so when you think about, like, Billie Eilish calling out fans on social media compared to, like, how tight-lipped Taylor Swift had to be for most of her career just to avoid upsetting her conservative fans, I love that pop stars, they don't seem to care anymore. They're just, like, <laughs> ideologically out there. Yeah, I wonder how much of it is the I don't care versus that you really have to care now. Like, the tone of the culture has completely yeah. shifted. Yes, for sure. And... I don't know. For me personally, part of what has been frustrating to watch within that shift is that some of the big shows of solidarity feel a little delayed and a little forced. Like famous non-Black artists are being forced to reckon with the rest of the world for the first time because their fan bases are really demanding that they do that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, Pooja, I mean, I think that's, that's part of it. So people are feeling forced to do it because if you don't say anything, you you seem to be complicit, right, with the establishment or with the problem. So it's like people go to look on people's Instagram, like, did they put a black square on June 18? You know, like, was it there? Right, like, right. what did you say, yeah. you know, when it was time to be counted? Did you speak up? So there is that feeling. And that's actually not a bad thing, right? Like, yeah. people feeling like there's a wave happening and I, ne I need to be part of the wave because you never know where the education comes. They could say, like... Right. I believe Black Lives Matter, and then they find out exactly why Black Lives should matter. But I do think there's another phenomenon to point to that we saw this summer, which is the rise of the Black Lives Matter um, expression as a kind of fashion, right? So we saw this with the corporations. Absolutely. Corporations who were just like, oh, I am down with the cause. And then you go look at the board, like who's actually on the board, <laughs> you know, who who are they actually funding? And it doesn't it doesn't jive at all with what they're saying. Mm -hmm. So it became an mm -hmm. easy expression for some people to say. And I got the feeling, as a Black person myself, I got the feeling that sometimes people really do believe that Black lives matter, but Black people, actual Black people don't matter so much. And then Black economic justice doesn't matter so much. And once you start talking about those sorts of things, then people right. say, oh, well, hold it. Like, theoretically, conceptually, <laughs> Black lives matter. But when you actually have to shift um, resources, when you actually have to redistribute resources, we, that's when the pushback comes. So, yeah, I think in pop music, what we saw this summer is a shift where even music isn't enough alone, right? Like, just putting out a, a good album doesn't necessarily change the world. And I think that's why we're starting to see artists say, look, I'll do what I can do with my music, but I also have to do more. I have right. to be committed yeah. to more than this. And so I think that's a that's a good thing in some ways. And I think we do have to also, those of us who are interested in these issues, have to push past the fashion of Black Lives Matter to yes. actually make Black Lives Matter in material, you know, physical, economic ways. Yeah. For me, it's been really mm, interesting to watch kind of the way that a lot more people seem to be very actively engaged um, with politics this year. Uh, I'm from North Carolina and was living there at the time of HB2, which was the state's mm -hmm. bathroom bill, um, which mm -hmm. was a really big deal. Yeah, yeah. But at the time, it seemed like a lot of people just kind of instantaneously demanded that a lot of artists speak up about this issue because, you know, bands tour and, you know, people don't want to think that the band that they love is supporting bigotry. And so right. 
a lot of people were demanding that musicians make some sort of statement or stand about North Carolina or what was going on in the state at the time. And people responded in different ways. And, you know, somebody like Bruce Springsteen canceling a show over HB2, that sent a really big message and was really powerful and affected people who probably had not thought about the issue of trans rights in North Carolina before. Um, But then, you know, if it's a smaller band, like, maybe their audience is already kind of a little more on the same page with them. And so the protest or whatever action that smaller band wants to take, like that can be meaningful in a different way, even if it's not canceling mm-hmm. a show. Um, so it's been interesting and I mean, exciting in its own way to see people just kind of like come into their own toolkits and like bring whatever they have to the table, whether it's a platform or records or whatever. Yeah. And I mean, this kind of brings me to my next question, which is when protest movements are fashionable and art inherently relies on capitalism to succeed, like can musicians be effective political organizers and also be the artists that they deserve to be from a financial perspective? Yeah. That's a, it's really tricky. I mean, I mean, of of course you can be. So when I look at some of the greatest pop stars or, or artists in popular music who have also been organizers or mobilizers or activists, Harry Belafonte, mm-hmm. who himself was inspired by Paul Robeson. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, yeah, they made money. They did earn income and they used that income sometimes wisely. Harry Belafonte helped fund the civil rights movement, for instance. Mm-hmm. He's one of the people who did that. So I think you can do both. I think the challenge is that it's really hard to be a full-time musician and also organize, commit yourself to activism. You know, I think there are very few superstars who have enough of a platform and enough uh, guaranteed income already to be able to make certain kinds of highly charged political statements. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Cardi B, although she's part of a trend, I think there are not that many who feel that comfortable doing it. But the problem is for people who are sort of in bed with the corporations and they're receiving their revenue from corporations, they're not likely going to disrupt or, you know, challenge the capitalist system that is actually facilitating their success. But there isn't enough of a discourse, I think, around that. And I think that's particularly true in hip hop, um, particularly because like trap, for instance, just like mythologizing, like conspicuous consumption and just shouting out brands all the time. I feel like we're at a weird stage where there needs to be a little bit of pushback against that. And there needs to be much more of a sophisticated discussion going on around um, class and the way in which class immiserates people. And maybe that's happening already. Yeah, I mean, there is some of that happening right now, um, especially with artists like No Name, who regularly post these critiques of capitalism on her social media. That's true. Mm -hmm. And to that end, I wanted to talk about this coming election. How have you guys seen artists mobilize around it? Yeah, I mean, musicians are doing what they can. Um, I would actually love to see people do more work as well, because yes. I think it's a, a really, ur- <laughs> it's an urgent moment. I mean, what, you know, one thing I would say is that, you know, you're not, you don't hear, a, there are not a lot of like election songs, right? Like, um, and not that there have to be or that there should be. And also it's a complicated election. It's a complicated political world that we live in. Um, but what I see musicians doing now is pairing with organizations that are trying to get people to vote. So mm-hmm. Headcount would be the main organization um, that is working with musicians 
using uh, getting pop stars to basically use their platforms, leverage them to get people out. Rock the Vote is a long-standing organization that's also doing something similar. Um, but musicians themselves are trying to do live streams and they're doing their own campaigns using their social media platforms. Lizzo's been doing that. Frank Ocean um, came out of silence to do that. Um, who else? Tyler, the creator, like just like put out a video that was... Uh, That's right. He's like really excited about voting. Look, I know I'm the last person y'all should ever take advice from, but I'm reiterating what everyone else is saying. And please, please, if you are young and your fucking back don't hurt, go to them polls and cast a fucking vote. And I didn't give a fuck about none of this shit, just like a lot of y'all. This is actually going to be my first time voting, but I am on the other. I see the light. So I think musicians are doing what they can do in this, the last few weeks, but I would love to see it happen through the music as well. I just never understand in an age where we have technology at our fingertips and where we also, to some degree, have cut out the middle person so that you can actually just make music and just put it up on a SoundCloud link or whatever else, why there aren't people who are able to sort of synthesize the moment, or as the writer Grail Marcus would say, absorb the energy of the moment and put it back out to us in the form of a single or an album or whatever it may be. And some people are doing it. I don't want to diminish the work that's being done, but I, I don't see a lot of albums that are directly taking on the moment. And maybe that's just because the, the political machine that we're in sucks up all the oxygen and makes it very difficult to even know what to say as a musician to be able to like speak to the moment. I think there are definitely some songs that are speaking to the moment but I also feel like some of what a lot of people are craving right now or, or looking for are those kind of huge songs that become these really kind of important rallying cries for people of many different backgrounds. Like they become kind of protest music canon by association. So some of the stuff that I'm thinking about is, you know, Beyonce's Formation or Kendrick's All Right or even the resurgence of Pop Smoke's Dior during the recent protests. These songs that are very pop, but feel kind of politically empowered. Oh, absolutely. And then even saying that out loud makes me think about how if creating art, especially art that is made for public consumption, is labor, then who are we expecting to do the work of it? Who are we asking to do that labor? You know, in what I just said, it implies that we're expecting black artists to do the work, mm, to mm-hmm. create the music that we need or that people really want to hold on to to get through a current moment. So it's such a complicated arithmetic. Yeah. And I mean, one thing that has helped me truly survive this year is, you know, I I feel like I get this like big guilt when I'm just like, oh, I want new music for like so-and-so because, you know, like you don't want to like make heavy emotional demands of somebody that who's like art and work you really would respect. Like you want them to be able to create on their own timeline that works for them. But I mean, for me, the fact that like anybody is creating anything through this year is like, I know. Even, like even that feels really defiant, whether it's against like political structures or institutions or traditions it feels it feels defiant against despair. I mean, the fact that there are still people like creating and making stuff right now, like on a very 
raw bare minimum level like it helps me get out of bed in the morning and whether that's like capital p political music or something else like (laughs) the fact that people are able to you know put creative energy into something right now and that they're able to access that vulnerability and then share it with the rest of us i think is still important and powerful absolutely and something that the uh, the activist uh, and writer and filmmaker Dream Hampton reminded me of recently is that you know political activism requires consciousness raising, mm-hmm. right? So that means sometimes just being really quiet and listening, learning, intuiting, reflecting before you actually go out and make your big statement or launch your new institution or whatever mm-hmm. it may be. And so one of the things I'm fascinated by right now is all the people who are reading interesting work that may yeah. ultimately show up in their in their stuff. I interviewed Dua Lipa recently and she's she surprised me. She said Dua Lipa said, "Oh, I'm reading uh, Roxane Gay's Bad Feminist." I was like, "Whoa, okay, that's <laughs> interesting." And it but it showed up in her album this year in the final track on the album which is um Boys Will Be Boys, which is like um you know, a cutting, sarcastic, deeply feminist track. It's second nature to walk home before the sun goes down. Now put your keys between your knuckles when there's boys around Isn't it funny how we laugh it off the height of it When there's nothing funny here And Moses Sumney told me he was reading um, Marx and, you know, he's reading about capitalism like that. I'm I'm curious to see how these things will show up in two to three years yeah, as part of an artist's political work. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I do think we have a lot to look forward to musically in 2021 and 2022. And also, everyone who's listening to this, please vote. Oh, yeah. And I was going to say, like, in addition to voting, I think it's important that, like, we do everything we can to help other people vote, whether that is, like, helping to be a poll volunteer. Um, You know, there are a lot of movements now to help people who have felonies uh, to restore voting rights to them. Mm -hmm. I think that that is something that is absolutely super important. And I really hope that like more people can get behind that. I think that like our individual vote, like should absolutely just be the bare minimum beginning and that like we owe it to each other to help everybody else like have that right too. And we, we started the conversation talking about like, what can music do what you know uh, what can music writers do are we insignificant in relationship to all of the problems that we're facing but i think we, we it's it's important to remember that one of the great things that music does is it fights against indifference and cynicism mm-hmm. right it has the power to make you believe even if you don't know what you believe in it has the power to make you believe that something can be done some yes. difference can happen change can occur yeah. and so i think part of the issue right now with voting is that there are there are too many people who are cynical about the voting process, understandably, given, all, you know, all the hijinks and shenanigans around voting, uh, you know, especially of the last four years. But I think one of the things musicians can do is to remind people through music or through whatever other means that it, you can make a difference. Like it matters and it matters to stand up and to like be counted and to be heard. Yeah. I mean, one thing, one song that I have thought about like almost every day um, is Sweet Honey in the Rocks, Ella's song, um, which, like, you know, takes its name from the activist Ella Baker. Teaching others to stand and fight is the only way I struggle survive. Oh, oh, we who believe in freedom. But the, you know, the 
repeated line in that song is we who believe in freedom cannot rest until it comes. And like, that is such a like plain mission to me that like, yeah, is, you know, and the way that they sing it is like so beautiful that it just, I don't, it's like, it's something that I think that everybody should carry with them. Yeah. That's such a nice idea to hold on to, especially because it's not just about this election. It's so much bigger than that. I know you don't need me to tell you this, but please go vote. And if you need something to listen to while you're waiting in line, you can hear the music that we talked about on this episode on our Spotify playlist. It's called The Pitchfork Review, music from the podcast. The Pitchfork Review is hosted by me, Pooja Patel. Thanks to Allison Hussey and Jason King for coming on the episode. You can follow Allison on Twitter at Allison Hussey, and you can follow Jason King on Twitter at Jason King Says. You can follow me at Sonari. You can follow Pitchfork on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Pitchfork. This episode was produced by Ben Montoya and Caitlin Pierce. It was edited by Todd Whitney, Andy Cush, and Alex Kappelman. Our original music is by Andrew Eben of Basement Crafts. This episode was mixed and scored by Ben Montoya. Special thanks to Amy Phillips. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to leave us a review and subscribe to the podcast. You can also send an email to podcast at pitchfork.com with any feedback. Thanks for listening and see you next week. Ever wanted to go inside the Met Gala? I'm Cho Minardi, and this week on The Run Through Vogue, we take you inside the world's most exclusive and glamorous party. We'll talk about the best looks from the red carpet and everything that happened after. Listen to The Run Through with Vogue wherever you get your podcasts.